This week on the show, we cover the Alan K. Briggs Memorial Scholarship on NetBSD. Uh, we talk to you about an automated tracking of OpenBSD ports contributions. Then we look at OpenZFS 2 on FreeBSD 12.2 blog post, OpenBSD on a TechLast F7 Plus laptop, a multi-volume support in Hammer 2 is also underway, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 384 in memoriam, recorded for the 30th of December 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to get the online backups for truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Treuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this last episode of 2020. And before we leave this old year behind, we have some uh, notes for you still from the old year and a little bit beyond. But nevertheless, uh, it's going to be interesting. So we'll cover them here. And it starts with uh, our headlines from the Alan K. Briggs Memorial Scholarship. Yep. Uh, so this is over on the NetBSD blog. And it says, uh, Alan Briggs was one of the earliest members of the NetBSD community. And he pursued his interests in MacBSD and uh, moved to become a NetBSD developer when the two projects merged. Alan was known for his quiet and relaxed manner and always brought a keen wisdom with him. Uh, allied with his acute technical expertise, he was one of the most valued members of the NetBSD community. Uh, he was a revered member of the NetBSD core team and keenly involved in many aspects of its application, from working on ARM chips to helping architect many different projects. Alan was renowned for his expertise. Uh, he was a distinguished engineer at Apple and used his NetBSD expertise there to bring products to market. Uh, he lived in Blacksburg, Virginia with his wife and twin boys, and was active in various community volunteer groups. Uh, his family touched the families of many other NetBSD developers, and those friendships have endured beyond his passing. Uh, we have received the following from Alan's family and de uh, decided to share it with the NetBSD community. If you can, we ask that you consider contributing to his memorial scholarship. So the Alan K. Briggs Memorial Color uh, Scholarship is an endowment to provide scholarships to uh, in perpetuity for summer programs at the North Carolina School of Science and Math, which Alan considered to be the place that fundamentally shaped him as a person. We would love to invite Alan's friends and colleagues from the BSD community to donate to this cause uh, so that we can provide more scholarships to students with financial needs each year. Uh, we are approximately halfway to our goal of $50,000 with aspirations to exceed that target and fund additional scholarships. Uh, they also have a note that if you are uh, able to donate from your employer and they have a matching program, uh, there's some special instructions to contact uh, the school and, and arrange so that both uh, your donation and the employer matching part are specifically directed to this uh, scholarship. Uh, so if you are going to do it, make sure you read the note at the bottom there about uh, the steps to make sure that your donation goes specifically uh, to that scholarship. Okay. I think this is a nice idea to honor the lifetime achievements here. Yeah. Uh, similar to the uh, the Paul Schenkeveld Memorial Travel Grant that we do with EuroBSDCon, or the EuroBSDCon Foundation. Yep. That's a nice way of uh, remembering people and uh, still do it, putting something out there in uh, their name. 
Okay, so next up we have toward an automated tracking of OpenBSD ports contributions. And this is over at dataswamp.org. And they say that since their previous article about a continuous integration service to track OpenBSD ports contribution, they made a simple proof of concept that allowed them to track what works and what doesn't. So they list that the continuous integration goal is a first step for the CI service would be to create a database of diffs sent to ports. This would allow people to track what has been sent and not yet committed and what the state of the contribution is, like builds or doesn't build, applies, doesn't apply. Um, they would proceed then following the following logic. First, a mail arrives and is sent to the pipeline. Second, it's possible to find a package path out of that uh, file. Then third, the div applies. Fourth, the dist files can then be fetched. And then fifth, the port check is happy, ideally. So step one is easy, they say. Uh, it would be a mail dumped into a directory that gets scanned every whatever minutes, every X minutes. Step two is uh, already done in their proof of concept using a shell script. Uh, it's quite hard and required tuning. Submitting uh, diffs are done with the diff tool. Uh, CBS diff or git diff, you know. The important part is to retrieve the package path like uh, lang slash php slash 7.4, and this allows testing uh, whether the port exists. Uh, step three then is important. I found, or they found, uh, three cases so far when applying a diff. First one, it works, so we can then register in the database if it can be used to build. Then second, it doesn't work, human intervention is required. And the third is the div is already applied and the patch thinks you want to reverse it uh, and it's already committed, so no work to be done. Okay, then being able to check if a div is applied is really useful. When building the contributions database, a daily check of patches that are known to apply can be done. Uh, if a reverse patch is detected, this means it's committed and the entry could be deleted from the database. This would be rather useful to keep the database clean and automatically over time. Step four then is an inexpensive extra check to be sure that the dist files can be downloaded over the internet. Step five then is also to inexpensively check uh, running the port info and report everything easy that is um, to fix, like easy mistakes. Uh, all the steps only require a ports tree and only step four could be tricked by someone malicious Ah, that's OpenBSD thinking about the bad guys out there and how to circumvent that. Uh, to use a patch to make the system download very huge files or files with some legal concerns, but that message would also appear on the mailing list, so the risk is quite limited. Uh, to further in the automation, building the port is required, but it must be done in a clean virtual machine. We could then report into the database if the diff has been producing a package correctly, if not, provide the compilation log and they give us a bit more information about the automatic VM creation. This could also be a jail, right? Yeah, so I know uh, Steve Wills has built something like this uh, for FreeBSD that uses the Bugzilla command line tool to use that API to get a list of ports PRs that have certain flags set, like you know, there's a patch and it's an update, and it will then grab those patches, suck them into a Poudrier to do a test build in a clean jail, uh, and if it builds, it will post back a reply to the bug saying this has been build tested and here's the logs uh, so that when a ports committer has time to look at it, 
they don't have to do the extra, you know, 20 or 30 minutes of work of download the patch, apply it, make sure it works. Uh, they know it works and they can just uh, go ahead with the committing part and it allows them to get uh, a lot more done in a, you know, if they have an hour each evening to work on stuff, uh, being able to do 10 patches instead of two makes a big difference for how much people get done. And so that's why I think work like this on all the BSDs is very important. You know, we only have so many uh, hundreds of contributors and we need to make the best use of their time that we can. Mm -hmm. And for the testing, running a jail or just spinning it up uh, on demand is much easier than running a VM. That sort of saves a bit of time. Uh, there's more instructions uh, down in the uh, article, so we refer you to the show notes if you want to know more. So in the news roundup this week, we have trying OpenZFS 2 on FreeBSD 12.2. Uh, so over on the Ruben Nerds blog, our friend uh, Ruben got to try it out. He says, OpenZFS 2.0 is a huge uh, achievement. It makes me bullish about the long-term prospects for the world's most trustworthy and nicest to use storage system. You can even use it today on FreeBSD 12.2, though I recommend tracking current uh, for these sorts of features. The rule of thumb for packages with drivers or kernel extensions is to see uh, when they were built. You know, at the time of writing, the OpenZFS and OpenZFS Kmod packages are still built on 12.1 until its end of life in another month or so. So they won't be able to load and boot in 12.2, which I agree is annoying. Baptiste has a solution for this where we'd have, I forget what he called it, but uh, a small repo that contains only the packages that need to be compiled differently for 12.2 than 12.1, but that's not uh, deployed fully yet. But as uh, Ruben said, you can solve the problem by building from ports. Uh, so he just gets a checkout of the 12.2 sources in user source uh, and a checkout of the ports tree, and then just builds sysutils openzfs and sysutils openzfs kmod, uh, and then changes his loader.conf to use the openzfs module instead of the zfs module. And then the last important thing is updating your path environment variables so that when you run ZFS or zpool, it uses the version in user local sbin rather than the version in sbin. Um, and that's how you switch to using the ports version of ZFS. Uh, he also notes that uh, you might need the special rc.d script to import additional pools. So if you have a pool other than the one you boot off of, uh, you want the feature that's in 13, but I guess didn't make it in 12.2 to auto import. Uh, those pools. Uh, and he does mention the caveat that you can use the encryption feature, but the bootloader doesn't support it yet. So you can encrypt your home directory, but if you encrypt the root file system, then you won't be able to boot. Okay, but I uh, see that more and more people are adopting the new ZFS code and will happily test it and find anything that they hopefully like and uh, some of the things that, that don't work, but I guess it's been tested thoroughly enough so that people enjoy it more than uh, swear and curse. Yeah, so great to read that. And we hope uh, that we get a couple more um, reports from ZFS running and that uh, the developers also get a nice uh, little shout out here that they did good work there. All right, then next we have OpenBSD on TechLast F7 Plus. So uh, uh, over at tomfatic.net, uh, the author, I think that's the blog owner, I'm not sure, 
Um, they say that they got themselves a TechLast F7 Plus laptop. It comes pre-installed with Windows 10, but they plan to use it as their daily driver and installed OpenBSD 6.8 on it. So the hardware for the people who are uh, not familiar with it. This is a thin 14-inch laptop that mostly looks like a MacBook Air. The specs goes like this. So it's a full HD IPS display, 1920 by 1080 pixels. Uh, the Intel Celeron N4100 CPU, which is four cores by 1.10 gigahertz with a Gemini Lake chip. Uh, eight gigs of soldered RAM, not expandable. Okay, seems like the new thing these days. Uh, then we have the Intel UHD graphics, 600 video cards, a 256 gigs uh, SSD, an Intel Dual Band Wi-Fi AC3165 card with no RJ45 port. Okay, so it's Wi-Fi only. And two USB 3 ports with a backlight USB keyboard. Okay, so that's good. And the article has a nice picture with Puffy observing uh, distancing and also wearing masks. Okay, so that's the uh, image where you can uh, see what OpenBSD is running on it. So uh, OpenBSD current 6.8 was installed using the Miniroot 6.8 image toasted on a USB stick. And I also plugged the USB TP-Link UE300 dongle into it uh, so that the other USB port uh, gets the preliminary network access. Secure boot is disabled by default, which means OpenBSD will natively boot. And to enable the proper enhanced speed step usage in OpenBSD, the OS selection has to be set to Linux in the BIOS. Okay. Then you hit the escape key, get to the AMI logo appearing, and sure enough, you get to your uh, install. Yeah, you select the USB drive as a boot drive and hit enter. And <laughs> as you then went to your FDE installation, nothing special here, follow the FAQ directions and you're good to go. And they use GPT partitioning, so that's also the way to go in the future. So that's good. They show the FDIS command that they are using, okay. And so at the end of the installation process, they hold the system, remove USB sticks, and get a key press to reboot it. All right, so what's the hardware support? I imagine the part people are most interested in is that hardware support overview. Yeah, so let's cover that. Uh, most of the hardware works, but there are two main issues. The touchpad doesn't work, yeah. and sleep and suspend only works half. What's meant by that? The laptop never really suspends, the keyboard and power lights are still on, and it never wakes up. I have to savagely power down the machine using the power button. Ah, okay, but the rest seems to work fine. So maybe they will fix this in the future. I guess this is, I mean, OpenBSD is good in the sleep and suspend department, I would say. So that could only be a matter of time. Um, so yeah, in the conclusion, they say that the metallic case doesn't get hot. CPU seems to operate about 40 to 50 degrees Celsius. Screen does get light reflection, but overall brightness makes it usable in an external environment. It is the perfect size for more. More comfortable than 12 or 13 inch, not as big as 15 inch. Color rendering seems to be good. So at the end, they say, all in all, that's not bad. You get what you expect from a $200 piece of hardware. Real users will probably love it, but regarding OpenBSD support, they would rather spend $50 to $100 more in a refurbished ThinkPad. Okay, good to know for the people that are in the market for a laptop. <coughs> Not talking about myself. Um, next up, we have multi-volume support in Hammer 2. Yeah, uh, so previously, Hammer only supported having one disk, uh, and it provided no redundancy, so if you 
you would use hardware rate or something to to make a single volume and then use that uh, for hammer so in hammer 2 they've now uh, added support for multiple volumes you can have up to 64 volumes uh, the feature and implementation are somewhat similar to the multi-volume support back in hammer 1 the most important thing to know is that there's still no redundancy the additional volumes are basically just like a, a vinum or a concat so it just adds space onto the end of of your logical device so the commit explains how it changed the on disk format but basically there's a volume logical offset table and so the root volume or the the first disk uh will start at zero bytes on logical on the disk and be as big as the volume is and then uh, the second disk will basically start at the end of the first disk and provide its solid size and then the uh you know if you have a, a third volume it will be appended on the end of that so if you are using three different volumes in a in a hammer two file system it doesn't seem like you know most of the time a read will actually use all of the disks basically most of the time a single file will only reside on one of the three disks and basically you're just concatenating multiple disks to make a larger pool oh, i see um currently the GrowFS tool does not work uh, with multi-volume file systems and the hammer 2 info directive ignores multi-volume block devices and the hammer 2 tool does not yet support the volume add and volume delete directives which existed in hammer 1 and there's currently no plans to support it so it sounds like uh, to create a multi-volume pool you have to decide how many volumes you're going to have from the beginning uh, at, at this time anyway mm -hmm. and if all of the parts of of your file system are not available then the mount hammer 2 command will fail uh, because you need all the disks so remember you want to get redundancy from somewhere outside of the hammer file system all right that's good to know so, so still make sure to have backups available in case you need them yes uh you know so hammer doesn't provide any type of raid uh so you might want to use something for that if you need the uptime and yes uh raid is not a backup you need a real backup uh, and so you want that as well. Okay. So yeah, we'll and you know we'll have a tip for that for you in just a minute. Yeah, backups are a thing. So now into the beastie bits, we have uh, the very last commit to the FreeBSD SVN repo. Uh, so that is uh, a change to the README to mark the repository as being converted to Git, and this is the last subversion commit to the source tree. Uh, so now the FreeBSD doc and source trees have both been converted to get the ports tree is planned to be done in the spring it's just waiting for the next quarterly branch to finish yeah that's the reason and so to correspond with the last commit to subversion we also have the first commit to git which was to remove those lines from the git repo <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, and there have been quite a few commits to the git repo since that happened uh last week yeah so people are catching on and using it more and more reminder that this does change the github mirror a little bit uh it seems that the repo in github will be called freebsd slash freebsd dash source instead of freebsd slash freebsd and the branch name is main importantly the hashes are different but i think there'll be more documentation about that coming very soon mm -hmm. yeah so that's uh still being worked on so congratulations to the people who are doing the uh, migration it's not done yet completely but at least the sort uh, source and ports uh no source and doc committers can can work with the new version and git yes and i've successfully 
made a doc commit that broke things and had to be fixed. But yeah, it's the initiation, right? So that keeps happening. <laughs> well, this one wasn't actually Git's fault. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, it built for me, but apparently didn't build properly in the mm. editing. Uh, just docbook syntax, which hopefully we'll be able to get rid of very yeah, soon. Yeah, that's another thing we try to get rid of. Yeah, so we look forward to that. Yes, and of course, this is only the first of many steps uh, on previously's journey in Git. You know, now that we have the repo converted, but we've we're still basically doing things the same old way. Uh, and then as we go forward, we'll get closer to being able to do uh, pull requests and stuff and improve the way all of this works and make it easier for people to contribute to FreeBSD. And in particular, means that tracking uh, credit for who wrote the code will be easier as well. Um, you know, you're, when you contribute to something to FreeBSD, it won't say it was authored by me and there's a little note in the commit that says this was contributed by somebody else. It will actually say, you know, these commits were written by this person and can, and just merged by this other person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that everyone gets credit where credit is due. Yep. Uh, and as as those push out to uh, GitHub, it'll even show up in your history and so on. Ah, yes. So it works for a resume building. <laughs> yeah, I did help in an open source project. That's good. Another good thing is that there is an OpenZFS 2.0 webinar coming on January 20 by Clara Systems. Yeah, so um, if you are interested in Rubinerd's talk of you know using OpenZFS 2.0 on FreeBSD 12.2 and some of the caveats that might be there and how to make sure that process goes smoothly, or if you're just like you know FreeBSD 13 comes out in March and we're going to want to upgrade to it, what do we need to know? Then this is the webinar for you. And then based on the feedback we get from that, we might have to do a whole one just on ZFS encryption. Uh, and maybe how to transition from Gelly to it and whether transitioning like that makes sense and so on. Oh yeah, so these are the features that people were looking for for a long time and now they want to use it and they should use it properly. Yes, uh, but in particular, OpenZFS 2.0, this webinar will focus on what the new features are, uh, how does it impact your existing installations and how to upgrade, uh, how to get access to OpenZFS 2.0 early on FreeBSD 12, uh, and how to plan to use some of the new features in the future. Like if you're building a new pool, then the new metadata segregation and the persistent L2 arc are both features uh, that you could might change the math of how you lay out your pool a bit. Whereas, uh, well, the, the persistent L2 arc you can take advantage of on an existing pool, but the uh, separate metadata VDEV doesn't retroactively improve an existing pool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we'll talk about all of that and answer. Uh, some questions and if you have suggestions for a future webinar do let us know okay yeah so thanks for making for doing these and uh, i guess people will uh, join that in the masses yes uh, and the videos of the previous two the first one i did and the one steve wills did are both uh up on our website uh, for you to watch as well cool that's great so a minute ago, we told you that, you know, RAID is not a backup. Even ZFS, uh, you know, snapshots are also not a backup. They're very convenient to save you from having to do a restore from backup uh, many times. Um, and, you know, RAID Z can make sure that your machine stays online even when the disk fails. But bad things still happen. And so you need a backup. And if you need to back stuff up, you probably want the backup to be secure, don't you? So head over to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow and check it out.
for only $25 per gigabyte per month, or sorry, 25 cents per gigabyte per month, you can store your backups in Tarsnap. Because your backups are segmented, deduplicated, hashed, compressed, then encrypted and signed, uh, it means that you don't send the same block up to be backed up multiple times. So that saves you bandwidth and time and money. It's all compressed, so you're not sending any data, you know, bigger than it needs to be. And it's encrypted and signed so that no one other than you can decrypt it because you're the only person with the key. And it's signed so that you can be sure that when you restore the backup, you're getting back the same files you sent and nothing's been modified. Yeah. Biggest thing to remember with Tarsnap is you're responsible for the key. If you lose the key, then you've effectively made the backup not restorable, which is a feature. Uh, you know, if you've backed up a lot of stuff to the cloud, you can never trust the cloud to have erased it, right? The cloud has a lot of replication and extra copies and, and erasure coding and their own backups. And so the only way to ensure that the old copies of your backups in the cloud are useless is to destroy the key and use a new one. But it means, you know, if you lose your key, there's nothing Tarsnap can do to help you. That's the design of the system is that they don't have the key so that they can't be forced to give up the key. Only you have the key. And so if you lose it, then you've lost your backup. But if you keep it safe, then uh, Tarsnap will be the most secure backup you can have. And they have tools for it uh, to allow you to, you know, you could print and laminate your key. Uh, and uh, the printed version has a checksum uh, along the last column so that you can tell when you made a typo when you're typing in a long key as you're manually transcribing it back into your computer. Yeah, there are many ways. But anyway, head over to tarsnap.com, get signed up, start doing your backups. You will thank me on some day that would have been a really bad day, but was saved because you had a backup. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's the, the idea. And there's many clients available for all the open source operating systems out there and the Windowses of this world, as well as the Macs, all of these people can make up backups using Tarsnap. You need to back up all of your computers. Yes, yeah, so that's the uh, best idea you could have in the new year and in the old one as well. Okay, let's move along to feedback and questions. The old year was full of feedback and questions, but uh, we can never have enough in 2021. That is uh, <laughs> right outside the door. But um, if people don't send us questions, then this will be a very empty segment. So send us any questions, show ideas, uh, things that are on your mind to feedback at bsdnow.tv and they then will appear. Yeah, and you know, one of the things is that we don't necessarily have all the answers, but we can put them on the show and then people might write in better answers than we have, which is what our first example is. Exactly. And so when people uh, write in, there might be a couple episodes where we need to hunt down the answer ourselves, but uh, you will at least get some pointers where you should look or to ask. Uh, so our first question is from, or well, our first feedback is from Jay, who is actually providing a reply to an earlier question that came in from Ian a couple episodes ago. Uh, and if I recall correctly, Ian was asking about, I'm kind of new to BSD and I've set it up, but what can I do with my system? And so Jay suggests a couple things. You could run a blog or website uh, on a droplet or, or some other virtual machine or something like that, that helps you learn to set that stuff up. But it also gives you a good place to keep your notes as you're learning, because those can be very valuable. You know, we always 
cite uh, Dan Langill's blog as the first example because his old FreeBSD diary helped many of us as we were getting started as BSD users. And his new uh, other diary or whatever he calls it um, has helped him a lot. In particular, when he's going to do uh, some operation, whether it's an upgrade or whatever, he will capture what his system looked like before, each step he took, and the output from it uh, as he does it. And though when he runs into trouble and has to ask for help, he can show, you know, this is what it looked like before, and then I did this and this, and now it does this, and it isn't doing what I want. Uh, and it makes it very easy to help him uh, because you can see what it looked like before, which is usually the big question mark. People just start doing upgrades without looking at what the system looked like before. And it makes it very hard to figure out what went wrong. Anyway, so yes, one of the first things you can do uh, as a new BSD person is set up a blogger website and start using it to record what you're doing as you're doing it and use that. A, it's your own notes to refer back to and make sure you understand what you've learned, but also can help other people by sharing. Uh, they also, uh, Jay also mentions you could configure and harden a firewall and set up an intrusion detection system and a bunch of other things like that that can be interesting ways to get started. Mm -hmm. So if you have other ideas for good beginner projects, we'd love to see more of those. Uh, it's a common question. It's like, all right, I've, I've you know, installed this FreeBSD VM, but what do I do with it? The way I got started was setting up an IRC server, but that's not really that entertaining anymore. <laughs> um, so it'd be great to have some more examples of, of types of things you could set up and run uh, to kind of exercise and learn a bit about being a, a BSD sysadmin and get some practical experience doing something that might be useful. And now we have a question or a feedback about an earlier episode, uh, feedback from Ellie Bluefire. And so that was about companies involved in FreeBSD and if more companies would um, turn away from FreeBSD and turn to Linux or whatever, then this would mean a slow death of FreeBSD. But back then we mentioned this is not the case, that there are other sources and that is not um, a great concern for the FreeBSD project as a whole. And so the project will still live on if big companies will move away. Although ideally it would be better if they would not turn away, but it's not the lifeblood um, for FreeBSD, so um, and that's what we mentioned back then. And so he um, just uh, commented here that he listened to that episode and where we addressed the concern about FreeBSD. And he's uh, happy to say that you have or that we have alleviated his concerns and uh, is grateful for uh, us doing that. And thanks us very much for this weekly episode podcast. Yeah. So again, this is nice, and um, we're doing this just for you to get the uh, BSD fresh news out. Okay, so thank you for that. And uh, next up is Mike with a ZFS cluster uh, question, or if it's ZFS is cluster aware. And that goes, uh, Dear Alan and Benedict, thank you guys for the amazing informative show. Good job, and you are really great. Thank you. I have a great, uh, or I have a question for you. <laughs> Uh, I have seen many times in the specs that an H8 option, like high availability, uh, in true NAS systems implemented as a second controller. Do the controllers work in active slash active mode or the second controller is in standby? If it's not a secret, if both controllers are active at the same time, how does true NAS work with ZFS if it's not cluster aware file system? Right. Uh, so I'm not intimately familiar with the true NAS specific bits of this, but in general, um, 
it is two computers that are linked via a thing called a non-transparent bridge, uh, which is basically a special kind of cable that can link the two motherboards so that the PCI devices on the second motherboard can be talked to by the CPU on the first motherboard or whatever. So it is active passive. So both, uh, while both nodes are running at the same time, only one of them is in control of the ZFS pool and all the disks. But uh, what makes it different than uh, regular, just two separate nodes uh, is that non-transparent bridge means that if the second node takes over, it can still talk to say the, NV, the NVMe drives that are plugged into the PCIe slots in the first controller. If so, yeah, hopefully that makes sense to you. Um, so it's active passive and only one of them controls the pool at a time, but because they have this special non-transparent bridge, the CPU on the second head can actually use the devices on the motherboard on the first machine. Um, so they can share things like um, a fast um, slog device that's a NVMe or something, and it makes it a bit easier to handle. Uh, in general, I believe they use multipath, uh, SAS multipath, so that both separate heads have paths to the disks, and they use SCSI reservations to make sure that only one of the machines is talking to the disks at once. So uh, when the heartbeat system detects that the second controller should take over, uh, it preempts and basically takes over control of the disks so the other head loses access and so that's how you ensure that zfs doesn't get corrupted because it is not a cluster aware file system yeah that's important to know and so don't make it one unless you really know what you're doing well, you, you can't make zfs cluster aware if you use zfs as a cluster yes uh, having the pool imported on two different computers at once will uh corrupt it uh in a way that is usually impossible to recover from yeah, so don't get yourself in that situation. Okay, I think that's it for today. We thank you again for listening. And uh, as 2020 comes to a close, uh, we hope that the next year is looking better for you, many of you, and that you have a positive outlook into a new year. Uh, best wishes, good health, and um, yeah, we will be back again in 2021, of course. Yes, and... Uh... Hopefully 2021 goes well and we get to see each other again. Yeah, uh, in the flesh, not on screen, although this is a, uh, the best replacement we can do at the moment. So um, we'll stick to it for now. And then once everything is back to normal, normal-ish, uh, we see each other in person. So thank you and till next time.